welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Well, let's look at the Elijah message, which will get us to our fondest hopes, and that is the coming of Jesus, because that's exactly what the Elijah message is to do. It's to prepare us for Jesus' coming. Thank you, our church choir, for uplifting that blessed hope to us. This month, uh, well, this is a new month, but back on July 18th, we began a series of messages on what is the Elijah message, and we've been discovering that like a golden thread, it is a message of the turning of alienated hearts by the agape love of Jesus, as revealed in Jesus, a turning of alienated hearts to God. It involves repentance, and it runs like a golden thread through Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. He prophesied during the days of apostasy and ancient Israel's Baal worship, a terrible experience for God's people to go through. Right through to John the Baptist, who, whose work was preaching and proclaiming and administering a baptism of repentance there at the Jordan River. Again, repentance involved in John the Baptist's work, all the way to Jesus' counsel to the last day church of Laodicea to repent of her self-satisfied condition. If there's anything that is common to all of these three, the Elijah message has to do with a message of repentance. The last day Elijah message is Jesus' appeal to his church. That is the message of the true witness to the Laodicean church. It's a message of God's love in the setting of the Day of Atonement. You know, we need present truth, truth that is for us right now. And what we need right now more than ever before is an Elijah message that will revive us and bring permanent reformation and change so that Jesus can come. So rightly heeded, it will bring the blessings of genuine revival and reformation. And the 144,000 will compose those who repent This Seventh-day Adventist movement began as a charismatic movement, and it will end as even a greater charismatic movement because the 144,000, may we dare say, will prophetically proclaim to the world the loud cry of the third angel's message, and they will be blessed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in large measure of latter rain proportions. Now, we don't make pretentious claims to, to possess the Elijah message. But I'll tell you, I for one, and I hope you feel the same way, I want to earnestly study the beginnings of the Elijah message, don't you? Amen. 
I desire to know more about it. I don't claim to have it, but I want to study it. We believe that the Lord's most willing to show it to us as the teacher of his people. And so we want to look by faith to him as our teacher in his capacity and his office work as our high priest in the most holy apartment. Do you desire to be reconciled wholly and completely to God? Do you? I think part of that heart yearning is that you see the devastating effects of what division and strife can do, not only within your family, perhaps, or marriage, but in terms of the church. You can see the devastating effects that strife and division can, can happen, can't you? And you are praying, aren't you, for unity and for healing then you ought to have a very strong motivation to understand Jesus' Elijah message because that's what's going to make reality uh, the reconciliation of alienated hearts to God. If there is any reconciliation that's going to take place on our human level, it first begins with our hearts being reconciled to God and then we are reconciled to one another. Hence, we're going to study this morning the Elijah message, and I would like to put this into your mind, that is, that the Laodicean message, which is Jesus, the true witness, is the sanctuary message. And that's the Elijah message that we want to study more fully. So this is not a yawner. Don't go to sleep. Stay awake. We're going to talk about the sanctuary this morning. Don't go off to sleep on Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we want to study the Elijah message. We want to know more. Please be our teacher. Help us to experience reconciliation of heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the great question that keeps popping up about the sanctuary message is, what does 1844 mean other than some mathematical puzzle that you have to figure out and diagram on a great big chalkboard or put up on the screen. And unless this finds an answer, devotion to our sanctuary message is going to just dry and shrivel up. And if that happens, you can say goodbye to any meaningful Seventh-day Adventist message beyond that of the Seventh-day Baptists. I'll come back to that in a moment. Well, maybe I'll say it right now. The sanctuary message is the unique understanding of present truth of the gospel that prepares a people to stand and be translated without seeing death, and it is unique to us as Seventh-day Adventists. Nobody else has it in the Christian world. Can you say amen? You need to come alive. We are not unique in terms of our understanding of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Right? You recognize that the Seventh-day Sabbath is kept by many other Christian denominations. You also recognize that the state of the dead, as we understand it, is understood by other Christian denominations. So the one thing that is unique to Seventh-day Adventists is our understanding of the sanctuary message. Now, if we give that up, where should, what should we do? we might as well become Seventh-day Baptists. 
Hence, we do not have a gospel as other Christian denominations understand it. We have a unique message, and we have suggested that it is the Elijah message. And it is sad to say that the message of the sanctuary is becoming a very moot question among Adventists these days. When was the last time you heard a message on it? Well, okay, you heard it right here. Praise the Lord for that. But you're going to find, be hard-pressed to find it anywhere else. So if we give that up, we might as well become Seventh-day Baptists because that's what makes us unique. So let's talk about this. The challenge is constantly thrown at us. Well, can you prove the sanctuary message, including 1844 and the investigative judgment from the Bible alone without using Ellen White as a crutch? Ellen White said, The correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. Our faith being the unique teachings of the Seventh-day Adventists that make us different from the Roman Catholic and the Evangelical Protestant churches. Ellen White says, It's the pillar that sustains the structure of our position. She was right. If the sanctuary in heaven, she says, is the very, the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men, then what Christ is ministering there to those who will receive it, it is the experience of justification by faith. That's the business that Jesus is doing in his office in the most holy. And our concern is how does the sanctuary message relate to that special truth of justification by faith. I was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have often pondered this problem, and with no internal misgivings or doubts, I have used the naked Bible to present the sanctuary message to non-Seventh-day Adventists as I have taught them in preparation for baptism. And I see it taught in the Bible without using Ellen White to bolster it up, as clearly as I see the Sabbath truth in the Bible. In fact, the sanctuary truth came to us as a people before the Sabbath truth did in our history. Now, some may say, you're naive and brainwashed. Well, at least I like baptizing people who remain lifelong committed Seventh-day Adventists who are rejoicing in the truths that make us a people that are distinct from the Sunday-keeping evangelicals, and yes, even our friends, the Seventh-day Baptists. The Seventh-day Sabbath is no longer a unique doctrine which we hold because there are numerous other churches that uh, count it as a sacred truth in the Bible too. So why are so, why are some giving up the sanctuary message? What they have understood as the sanctuary message has always been only a cold theological dogma. It never became a heart-gripping, heart-melting truth. They never learned to love the message. The sanctuary left them cold, probably in many cases worse than that. It left them dominated by a nightmarish fear. Why? 
because they saw Christ's ministry in the most holy apartment as a court trial where our very existence is jeopardized. And in this court trial, if you receive a rejection slip in the investigative judgment, then you are consigned to hell. And so this distorted view of the doctrine was not mere theological trivia. Its side effect to them was spiritual terror. But the issue could not be more important to understand. The most disturbing statement Ellen White ever made makes simple common sense. And it's just a brief little passage in early writings, pages 55 and 56, and pages 260 and 261, where she goes on to further explain it. She says that if we reject a change in Christ's sanctuary ministry in 1844 where he moves from the first department and closes that door and goes into the second department. If we reject that truth, we lay ourselves open to a deception of a false Christ posing in the place of the true one, putting on a show that is complete with miracles. In other words, if we give up this truth of the most holy apartment ministry and put it to silence in our midst, we are open to all kinds of Baal worship that comes in from outside. And we will search for something to jack the people up and keep them with us and excited. What we need is good, solid truth from the Scriptures to bring about a genuine revival and reformation. We don't need a lot of human-produced beating of the drums and the chest and calling and praying down this spirit and that spirit when we don't even know which spirit we're praying to. And by now, I can say that this counterfeit spirit where Satan sets up his ministry, as it were, in the first department is well-nigh overwhelmingly deceiving to so many of our people. And yet we face the influence of former thought leaders who repudiate these insights about a difference in Christ's high priestly ministry. And it may not be their fault that they feel this way. You know, ministers and leaders in our past generally have taught them that the sanctuary message, divorced from the special enlightenment of the Elijah message, the most precious message, which was hijacked when the Lord sent it, they understand it as a dry, cold dogma. But Ellen White told us in 1896 that by the action of our own brethren, her words, the light has been in a great degree kept away from the world and from our own people. First Selected Messages, Book 1, page 234 and 235. You can read it yourself. So let's be charitable to these sanctuary message rejectors and consider others lest we also be tempted. These people among us who today are rejecting the sanctuary message very likely grasp, can never grasp the Elijah message. They grew up, they went through our school system without anyone ever teaching them either the message or our history. And to this day, there is in none of our schools a course that is offered on the Elijah message. Anyone who gets it does so by an accident. 
The message lifts the unique Seventh-day Adventist sanctuary message out of confusion and perplexity. It clothes it with the bright garments of Christ's righteousness. That is, the gospel is seen as very good news. I see justification by faith as far more than a cold, stale theological dogma. It's good news far beyond pastors and leaders who don't see the Sabbath truth in other denominations, nor the sanctuary truth, nor the truth about the sleeping saints who are awaiting the resurrection in Christ. God has many people in the Sunday-keeping churches who are living up to all of the light that they have. They simply don't understand, know the Elijah idea of justification by faith because they don't see that in death man sleeps until the resurrection. They think that when you die, you go immediately to heaven. So why do you need any kind of sanctuary message to prepare you for the second coming? By the way, why do you even need a second coming if you already go to heaven when you die? Well, that brought him alive. Praise the Lord. We can see the difference, can't we? They don't know how to follow Christ into his closing work of atonement in the most holy apartment. But both ideas are essential to justification by faith as being present truth for us today. And we need present truth today to revive us and to bring permanent reformation. The heavenly sanctuary can never be cleansed. And this is the big idea until, first of all, the hearts of God's people are cleansed. And that's very simple. That's the sanctuary message. When we talk about the cleansing of our hearts, we mean hearts that are alienated from God, transformed by his agape love. But it's far more than a legalistic accounting trick, justification, whereby God looks the other way. While we continue sinning, the missing factor is supplied by a new and clearer grasp of justification by faith, which Ellen White saw makes the Elijah message become the third angel's message in verity. You see, faith is what God's people need today. It was faith that told those women on Sunday morning that Jesus is risen from the dead. You haven't seen him yet, but it was faith that told them that he was resurrected. Faith doesn't wait to put your fingers in the holes in his hands or in his side as Thomas insisted upon. According to 1 John 4, 16, truth requires a greater commitment than mere intellectual conviction. It requires faith, which is a heart appreciation. We have known and believed, John writes. That's how we followed, dear friends, the true Christ into his ministry in the most holy apartment by faith, a heart conviction, not just an intellectual conviction, Convincing, however, is the evidence, objective evidence, but it's a heart appreciation of it. How does the Elijah message lead us to fall in love with the Seventh-day Adventist sanctuary message? Let me just share with you some heartwarming truths here that will help me and help you to fall in love with the sanctuary message, the Elijah message. Number one. Look at hymn number 191 in your hymnals, will you? 
hymn number 191 in your hymnal. By the way, I've asked Mark if we can sing this as our closing hymn today. But look at stanza number four right at the beginning. And here the author is Charles Wesley. And he, John and Charles Wesley sensed the need for something that was not yet clearly understood in 1747 when this was written. So if you look at stanza number four, it reads, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Now that's the sanctuary truth right there. There's how the sanctuary can be cleansed. Our hearts can be cleansed and then his sanctuary can be cleansed. The Wesleys, you see, were trying to get their fingertips on the special truth that informed the Elijah message, which is the message of Christ's righteousness. It will yet lighten the earth with God's glory. In the Elijah message, the Wesleys could have realized what they were looking for. They were just living before their time too early. Number two, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary makes a difference in our practical day-by-day living. If it's impossible for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed or justified or made right, those are just different meanings of the Hebrew word cleanse there in Daniel 8.14. If it's impossible for it to be justified or made right, the heavenly sanctuary, until the hearts of God's people on earth are first cleansed, then that has an important conclusion that Christ as our high priest is specializing now in convicting you and me of previously unknown sin that exists in here. And as each of us, as each is seen, each of those sin is seen as the Holy Spirit convicts us and it is forsaken. We confess our sins and forsake it for his sake. Day by day, the special work of cleansing is going on and on and on. And the high priest plans for it to be complete. And he wants it to be soon. And he will do it if we don't resist him. Number three, that's not merely a legal assumption on God's part. Something he knows well is not yet a reality. For you see, when Revelation 14 and verse 12 declares, Here are they that keep the commandments of God. When that is spoken, it will be true. It will be true and fulfilled in them. It has to be true. These people have overcome, even as Christ overcame. By the way, that is Christ's promise to lukewarm Laodicea. It will overcome, even as he overcame. They have not merely been legally accounted as overcomers, contrary to the reality, to the facts of the case, but the objective gospel has at last become subjectively demonstrated in them. And don't ridicule 
this solemn truth. There are many people who are ridiculing this whole idea. That's why they've damned the sanctuary truth to silence. They don't even bring it up anymore because they don't believe in Christian character perfection, that God's law can be put in the heart and in the mind. Maybe, perhaps, we hope, someday, you're excused for now. Don't ridicule this truth, dear friends, because if you do, you'll be like the Lord on whose hand the king leaned, who ridiculed Elisha's prophecy of a miracle that's going to happen tomorrow about this time. And he got to see the miracle, but he never participated in the blessing. When Ellen White speaks of the 1,800 years of Christ's ministry in the first department, at no time did Jesus have a corporate body of believers on earth whose faith had thus matured up until 1844. And no one from Christ's ascending to heaven until 1844 was ever translated without seeing death. No one. That was the first department ministry. There was no one that was prepared to be translated in that first department ministry during all those long centuries. But now comes a change in his ministry. It's the cosmic day of atonement. And the heavenly sanctuary is la- at last is to be cleansed in that now he has a body of people whose hearts have been healed of every root of alienation from God. The atonement becomes a reconciliation with himself, complete on this antitypical day of atonement, when Charles and John Wesley were trying to get a grip on this and they were teaching Christian perfection, they were bitterly opposed, just as today. There was a fellow who put some hymns in our book called Augustus Top Lady. He's the author of that lovely hymn in our book, Rock of Ages. Ever sing it? He was bitterly opposed to John and Charles Wesley's teaching regarding perfection. The very idea of overcoming faith, even as Christ overcame. Why, that was considered fanatical. It was labeled perfectionism. We hear those same words today. Even today, there are devout people just like Augustus Toplady who see the Elijah idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary as impossible perfectionism. Discouraging to think of. The reason is that there is a missing link in their understanding. Just what is it? The Elijah message idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary is not that you have to do the work. The high priest does it. And his people stop resisting him in his office work. That's to borrow, actually, Ellen White's exact phrase or expression. They let him do it. They take away the roadblocks in his way. Never does the Bible say that the ancient Israelites had to cleanse the sanctuary. Their high priest always did it. And prominent in the Elijah message is this idea of ceasing to resist the Lord. 
ceasing to resist. Ellen White states it so clearly. Listen, from Steps to Christ, you got that book? Page 27. The sinner may resist this love, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist, he will be drawn to Jesus in repentance for his sins. The exact words of Ellen White. To stop resisting Jesus. That's the essence of the cleansing of the sanctuary idea. Have you got it? To stop resisting Jesus. You know, it's good news, better than most Adventists have ever thought it is. In early 1890, Ellen White was moved to write a series of articles in the lead paper of the denomination, the Review, that linked together this idea of Christ's most holy apartment ministry with the Elijah message, the idea of justification by faith. Just to read maybe one example, she says, we are in the day of atonement and we are to work in harmony with Christ's work of cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people. Now listen. Let no man who desires to be found with the wedding garment on resist our Lord in his office work. There's the word resist. She says that this message is not studied or comprehended by the people. She says in one place that not one in a hundred understands righteousness by faith. That was way back in the 1800s. I wonder what it is today with the sanctuary truth dropping out of our midst. She says, in March the 4th of 1890, we shall have to meet unbelief in every form in the world, but it is when we meet unbelief in those who should be leaders of the people that our souls are wounded. Then she says, our churches are dying for the want of teaching on the subject of righteousness in Christ seems that no one in Battle Creek grasped what she was saying back there in the 1800s. Guess what she got as a reward for writing all of those series of articles on the sanctuary truth and the Elijah message, which she connected with the 1888 Minneapolis events. Guess what reward she got? They sent her in exile to Australia in 1891. To answer our initial question in very simple terms, the difference between Christ's ministry in the first department and in the second is what he does in believers. Up until 1844, it was totally Jesus preparing people to die so that they could be accounted worthy to come up in the first resurrection. That's a great work for a high priest to do, don't you think? to prepare a people to die, to come up in the first resurrection. If any of us are called to die, may we be prepared. May we be prepared. But when we looked at, in context, Jesus' ministry in the second apartment is intended especially to prepare a people to be translated without tasting death. While they are still in the flesh, they must see Jesus. They must meet him face-to-face, which is only the pure in heart can endure. These must be, as the text was on our screen earlier, these must be alive and remain under the coming of the Lord and shall be caught up together with 
the resurrected of all of the ages to meet the Lord in the air. Those dear saints who have gone to their graves before us have to stay there until we are willing to let Jesus plant his agape love in our hearts, and then we'll all go together. We alive, they resurrected from the dead. The Seventh-day Adventist sanctuary message, I think, makes sense, especially in the light of what Christ's sermon, on the, uh, sermon to his disciples there in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 34. It was heaven's purpose. Jesus is going through the signs of the last days there, you remember? He talks about them, and then he says there in verse 34, that within the, this generation of those who saw the last of those Heavenly signs of his near return, the falling of the stars and the dark day. Within that generation, they would see the coming of the Lord. Now, was Jesus a false prophet? Never. The pioneers understood Jesus to mean that within that generation, Jesus would come. The otherwise inexplicable delay and the reason that Jesus didn't come within the life of that generation who saw all of those signs is that there has been a resistance to Christ in his office work in the most holy place. And that means the delay can all be put squarely on the shoulders of Laodicea. The Gospel Commission in the light of Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, could have been accomplished within a very few years after 1888, I'll just read. I just picked this out of the General Conference Bulletin of 1893 where Ellen White is addressing the General Conference in session, the delegates, and she says this to them. This is five years after 1888. If every watchman on the walls of Zion had given the trumpet a certain sound, the world might ere this have heard the message of warning. The delay in finishing the work of cleansing the heavenly sanctuary is not due to the fact that heavenly computers have a terrible backlog or that they have broken down or that the angels have been terribly inefficient in their records. The problem lies with us. The Elijah message idea also relieves minds of perplexity. What in the world is Jesus doing since he ascended to heaven? Is he on vacation? Is he on vacation? Or is he absorbed in some other corner of the universe where business is, is uh, pressing? What he does is obviously his office work. Jesus is involved moment by moment, minute by minute, involved in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And it is a terrible thing, a war to resolve. And the great enemy is working very, very hard. He knows that if he can snuff out the sanctuary truth in the midst of Seventh-day Adventists where it is held uniquely and only that he can indefinitely postpone the preparation of God's people and stave off the second coming, which is not good news to him. So it only makes sense 
that his deceptions would be incredibly unrecognizable unless you know the genuine. Then you can see the counterfeit. There's no time that Jesus has been on vacation. No. Battles more real than fought with nuclear weaponry are going on right now in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And Jesus is fully engaged in the battle and in the warfare. It's only right that God's people should sympathize with their general in this battle. Amen? In these contests. And that's what what Ellen White means about following Christ into the most holy apartment. Sympathize with him in this great warfare. The Elijah message idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary also imparts to those who understand it a new motivation for following Christ. Instead of fear of the investigative judgment, it is cast out. Fear is cast out of the investigative judgment. That, again, is part of the cosmic day of atonement, a time for at last realized oneness with Christ. It delivers from fear as much as he himself was delivered from fear in his life on earth. You know that the faith of Jesus triumphed over fear of his death on the cross for you. And that same agape kind of faith will triumph over your fear of whatever lies ahead, investigative judgment included, because the investigative judgment is good news. It's when God declares for you and against your enemies. Our natural self-centered concerns for, the sal- for our own personal salvation are going to be sublimated, uh, uh, sublimate, repre- put down in these last days. You know, we're so caught up with these subjects of how can I know that I have assurance of eternal life That's all going to be forgotten about with this agape message, and we're going to be concerned about Jesus and his getting his reward. All of this navel-gazing is just nothing more than our own insecurities and fears. Amen? And the sanctuary truth also leads directly to the bride of Christ making herself ready. That oneness is something that has never happened In all past history, the marriage of the Lamb is come, for his wife hath made herself ready. Jesus never participates in a shotgun wedding. How long do they last? How long do you have to date a person to really know them before you get married? Four years. Three years. Two years. Some people think six months. Oh, we're just so much in love. We have seasoned love for one another. Jesus does not participate in shotgun weddings. He participates in weddings of people whose agape love is his agape love and whose interest is his interest where all self has been set aside. And as individuals, all of us are invited to be guests at his wedding. But Jesus has never had a corporate body, a church, that has experienced such agape love 
that has made themselves ready. By the way, what does it mean to make herself ready? Well, I'm studying this. I want to know. But I think it at least it means this, to recover something we've lost in our past, just like the Jews have lost something in their past regarding their Messiah. And repenting that if I'd been there, I would have done the same thing because of self-exaltation. And it's going to involve repentance. This is what it means to make herself ready. In exchange for self, you have this wonderful garment of his righteousness, this agape love of his. Our natural reaction to that, I'm sure, is it's just too good to be true, Pastor. Can't happen that way. Anticipating our temptation to doubt, the angel told John, write, for these words are true and faithful. Do not despise the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it can do. If you do, you will be there perhaps to witness the wonderful day, but not participate in it. The message of the true witness to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans turns out to be the Elijah message. It turns out to be the sanctuary truth. A new appreciation of it. Not as we knew it under the third angel's message, but as we now know it under the fourth angel of Revelation 18, verse 1. The message to the Laodiceans is the Elijah message. Study it. Read it for yourself. It's Jesus' counsel to his people. This message has not become a museum piece in our denominational attic. It grips hearts worldwide today, wherever it is presented. The Holy Spirit impresses souls who seek to follow Christ of his much more abounding grace for overcoming. The sanctuary message that the Lord in his great mercy sent to us must yet enlighten the earth with glory Thank God it will. May it be soon. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.